0: Everybody, come together, come together right now everybody come together right now. Everybody, come together right now If
1: you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk welcome to the latest edition of the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like, just not sports. On today's show, we will talk to SB Nation's rising star Charlotte Wilder about her recent obsession with baking shows, despite the inconvenient fact that, you know, she cannot and does not bake And we will break down the return of the video game Shaq Fu, and I will try to convince my co-hosts here to pool our money to buy the movie rights. Guys, I may have already bid on them. Answer my text. I'm your co-host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago, and joining me on the line fresh off of a Super Bowl of insanity is... A PR representative who has logged time with the University of Colorado, the Green Bay Packers, and many global sports brands. It's Adam Millard. Adam, uh, in a nutshell, give me one word to describe Super Bowl this year in fabulous Minnesota. Grind. <laughs> like an Eric Nice grind or like a... <laughs> Uh, you know, factory making corn into, uh, uh, you know, uh, tortillas <laughs> grind.
2: Yeah. Uh, more like working in the coal mines grind. Just, <laughs> just exhausting. Kind of, kind of soul sucking. Yeah. when did, did you, when you get back?
1: Do you, do you stay for the game or did you, did you come back uh this week?
2: Uh, I did not stay for the game. I came home Saturday morning and was that the great thing about that trip is it's about a 45 minute flight from Chicago. So I took off at nine. It was on my couch by noon. Um, yeah, it was, it was, I was glad to be home and, not, and not to say that it was a negative experience, but you guys have both worked them. And I know people listening will say you're spoiled, but work is work. 70 hour week is a 70 hour week. And I know Gareth put in even more time than that. Uh, so, yeah, it was great. I, I still stand by what we've talked about before. I think there should only be four Super Bowl or four cities uh, allowed to host the Super Bowl. Minnesota, I actually like that town. I like the people there. have a lot of friends there. Just not equipped for a Super Bowl. So, cannot wait for Atlanta next year. Yeah, I
1: have a, I have a real hot Minnesota take here, guys. I think a Juicy Lucy is just a messy burger. Get that out of my plate. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah, it's kind of like the Wisconsin butter burger. The novelty sounds great until it's in your stomach. <laughs> uh, I, just, I
3: love a butter burger. I'm not. I'm going to disagree on that. Just saying.
1: <laughs> Fair yeah. enough. All right. Also, fresh off the Super Bowl, you last heard him in a frozen truck in Minnesota just a few days ago. It is seven-time Emmy-winning sports producer Gareth. Hughes Gareth, you you ran into our guest this week, Charlotte Wilder, in uh, in Minnesota. Did uh, did she think you were a creepy stalker? Well,
3: I I thought it was her based on her Twitter picture. We were next to each other in line at the Starbucks in the middle of the food court, and but I will admit to doing some name tag creeping just to be sure it was her before I was like, "Hey, did I just miss a podcast interview with her?" Which actually would have been a perfectly normal icebreaker around that media center. Um, but oh, right. so yeah, that, that was, I, I, I read her thing and said, Oh, you're Charlotte Wilder. And I said, uh, you, I'm part of the just not sports podcast. You just did an interview on baking. She was like, Oh, that was fun. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I was pissed. Cause I used to bake. I baked at high rise in Cambridge and Boston before getting into sports. And she like her, she was taken aback. And she was like, no shit. She was like, I grew up in that neighborhood. That is my parents' bakery. We're good friends, like old family friends with the owner. And I was like, nah, like that was. And I was like, look, when I worked for him, because if this gets back to him, whatever, like he and I buried the hatchet to a degree. Like when I worked for him, I was like a 23 year old, overly confident piece of shit. Now I'm like a 38 year old, overly confident, mild. Turd. And then I asked her if she had made the Alison Roman chocolate chunk shortbread cookies that I recommended on here a few weeks ago. And she said, oh, no, I don't actually bake. That was what the interview was about. I <laughs> watch shows oh. about baking.
2: So. So, so Gareth and I worked together a little bit at Super Bowl. We didn't see each other much during the week, but we did see each other at the end of the week. And Gareth, you also ran into... Uh, legendary NFL writer Don Banks, and I thought that exchange. Was
3: funny. <laughs> this is this is some great just on sports behind the scenes. So I was doing I was working for the Not Done Network for the Patriots last week or at the Super Bowl, and I, I actually like <clears throat> it was a grind. I listened back to our last pod where I talk where I did an interview from there. Um, I, I had a blast doing it, and I was proud to be part of it. By the end of it, it was uh, it was like working for like a a short term startup where it's just like you dump all your ideas out as quickly as possible. You go nuts for a week and then you're done, you know? And so this week we're kind of adjusting to coming back, but Don banks was on the network a lot. He was on my show a few times But when you're producing a show, you're not like, unlike, like, uh, I was about to say Regis and Kathy Lee, but unlike, uh, Ryan and what, whatever that show is now, or Kelly and Ryan, uh, Gelman stands out on the floor. Most producers don't actually stand out on the floor. They're in the talent's ears in an IFB, kind of walking him through the show and telling them where you're going to go next. So that's why I'm in a truck the whole time. Um, so I never actually – I wasn't meeting Don Banks, even though like I was basically producing his segments. So I'm in the bathroom at the mall food court, which I have some thoughts on in a second. And I see him there. I was like, oh, hey, Don, Uh, I'm Gareth. I'm producing with the Not Done Network. He's like, oh, okay. And I was like, yeah, also, I interviewed you for the Just Not Sports podcast on baseball cards a little while ago. He he laughs. He goes, oh, yeah. I tweeted that out. Man, that was a a really fun interview. Quirky as hell, but, you know. (laughs)
0: Just
1: super weird that you would call me about that, but okay. Well,
3: as we were doing it, we're standing at the hand blowers in this bathroom. So, I don't know if I picked the right moment, but don't say I didn't shoot my shot, man.
1: So, first of all, Gareth, hey dude, it seems like you're the Jamal Crawford of shooting your shot at Super Bowl, man, because you're like... Accosting Charlotte Wilder at the Starbucks. You're hitting Don Banks up as close to the urinals as you can get. <laughs> like I just, I don't know what you're doing, well, man. Brad, stay away from our guests. Th- that just is, stay away from our guests.
3: <laughs> yeah, the, the way you're saying that, though, you're clearly like speaking like somebody who wasn't at the Super Bowl because that men's bathroom. I think probably four contracts were signed in there over the course of this week. Man, like it went <laughs> down in that bathroom. That bathroom yeah. was like my Vietnam dude. Like I went in there at seven thirty in the morning to drop a deuce and there was no toilet paper. And I had to shimmy three <laughs> three <laughs> stalls down. That was seven thirty in the morning, then all night to do it over again. Like just think of what a men's bathroom would be like at Super Bowl Radio Row in the middle of an already crowded food court.
2: <laughs> you know what I mean? Like who yeah. thought that one Carnage. through? It was crazy. Yeah, Oof. I've got I have a bathroom story, and I don't know if I can tell it, but I'm going to tell it anyways. Uh, so this was the Super Bowl in Indianapolis, and we had a, we had a pretty incredible lineup. Um, so we had Peyton after he had just been released by the Colts. Uh, we had Cam Newton, who was signed as a Gatorade athlete. We had RG three. And we had Andrew Luck, who was uh, there in Indy with us, obviously before he was drafted by Indy. And there was extra uh, tension around him because no media had, had talked to him and we were able to give his time out. So the it was handed down that no one was to talk to Andrew Luck outside of our space. And I was assigned to shepherd him wherever he went. So... He had to go to the bathroom, and this was in an area accessible by fans and media, and he went in to relieve himself, a a number, a deuce, as you would call it, Gareth, and- (laughs) I couldn't uh, figure out how
3: to say that. Like, take a crap or, you know, whatever. Yeah,
2: it's okay. Perfectly acceptable. And he went into the stall, and he looks at me like, are you going to stand in the bathroom? And I look back at him, and I go, "Yes, I'm going to stand here while you shit. This is my job." And uh, <laughs> and then we took we went did interviews. So that is the glamour that is Super Bowl, guys.
1: Wait, are you wait? Was it a one stall bathroom with like a urinal, and you just you're just standing right there? Yes. Or was it was like a three
2: stall. One stall, as I recall. Oh, it was all like, Adam. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Adam,
1: um, that's uh.
2: Well, no, there was a divider. I mean, I wasn't watching him actually. I didn't see the act. No, there's, but
1: there's the the barrier, but there's just one barrier and then maybe like one urinal and a sink.
2: Correct. Yeah. And sure enough, as he exits and goes to wash his hand, there is a writer right there who was like, hey, do you got a couple minutes, Andrew? And it's like, (laughs) see, buddy, this is, this is why I have, this is why I have to do this. I know, I know the gig.
1: Yeah, Adam, uh, he only washed his hands cuz you were standing there. You know? Like <laughs> I agree. I
2: agree. All right. dirty Andrew Right
1: now, work. we're going to take the uh, open of the show and make it wide open. Anything in the sports world that's not sports is fair game. Guys, I'm starting this week because I want to talk about Shaquille O'Neal, the 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 athlete of the, the non-sportsman of the millennium uh, still bringing it even though he's been inducted into our Hall of Fame on multiple occasions. He put out a trailer for the new, I guess you would call it a reboot of the Shaq Fu video game. And it's only, it's what I would call the equivalent of if George Lucas put out a new Star Wars and was like, by the way, sorry about the prequels. They sucked (laughs) because the trailer (laughs) legit talks about how Shaq Fu in 1994 was awful and how they're redoing it to actually be good. And I just, I, I Shaq, man, I got to give him credit. He's always a step ahead. He gets it. He knows that no one wants another Shaq food. They want a, a Shaq martial arts game that matches their dream journal from 1993, which is what I had. So <laughs> I got to say, Shaq, I'm excited. Also, I want to throw out there this. At the start of the trailer, it talks about how the video game is rated T for teen. For these four reasons, uh, mild language, okay, fine. <laughs> Violence, clearly, it's it's a kung fu game. Huh? Sexual themes, <laughs> what? Huh? That's
0: interesting. Drug reference. Game?
1: Drug reference. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, guys, I couldn't have been more excited for this game already, and now I might get sexual <laughs> themes and drug references. I'm all in. Shaq. I don't even own a video game system. Let me know what to buy, bro. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs>
2: uh, I have an Xbox, so I will take a, take a bullet for the team, and I will buy this and report back. Oh, I'll take, a bullet, I'll just- I'll take a bullet yeah. for the team. I'll take a bullet for the team and it- buy
1: this, this, this marijuana sex thing. <laughs> Come on, Adam. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: I'll put it on the Just Not Sports credit card.
1: All right, well, anyway, I don't know when that's coming out, but it can't get here soon enough. Adam, uh, wide open, what do you want to talk about?
2: I don't think I've been more excited for an upcoming movie than I am for Creed two. I don't know if you guys have heard about the plot, but Michael B. Jordan's character fights Drago's son. Uh, I mean, need I say more? Uh, how great is that going to be?
1: Well, let me ask you this where does where does um apollo creed's death at the hands of Ivan Drago rank in the in the rocky spectrum of movie moments
2: like in in terms of sad moments or just most memorable moments
1: no i mean i i think the the saddest moment is clearly when paulie loses his robot in and four during the uh the seizure scene i just want to know like when like overall like in the context of the entire movie like would you say it's top five top 10 top 20 out of the top 20
2: top five and i remember that carl weathers was pissed that his character got killed um and i still i still holds a grudge against um Stallone for that allegedly
1: yeah, I still hold a grudge against Carl Weathers because I invited him on the show and his agent told me he was too busy filming his new hit show Chicago Law, which canceled like 2 weeks later. He was not he was not too busy. <laughs> I heard about this. I thought it was a rumor, but apparently it's true. When's the movie actually coming out?
2: Comes out in November and I think what they've done what sorry, what the Rocky franchise has done really well is they've cast actual boxers. As the lead protagonist in the last three, so Rocky Balboa was Antonio Tarver. Uh, I don't recall the name of the boxer uh, in the first Creed movie, Um, but there is a a German Romanian professional boxer whose name I can't pronounce um, who will be playing the role of Drago's son. Uh, I think it'll be great. I'm curious to see if there'll be if what the uh, tension is between. Rocky and Drago as well should be good. That'll yeah. So it was supposed to come out in November. Uh, Stallone did not write the first Creed movie, but he did write this most recent one. So we'll see. <laughs> oh no, dude, you say that like
1: it's a selling point.
2: <laughs> He's he wrote he all wrote the Rocky movie. man like I he wrote okay all of, he in. wrote all of the Rocky movies except <laughs> for Creed.
1: Guys, that was, was forty three years ago. <laughs> like,
2: I think. guys, no, he wrote Rocky Balboa, which I thought he wrote Rocky, Rocky Balboa, which I thought was very well done. What? That was what? You thought that you thought 2007? that
1: Tarver movie was good? You thought that was good? Yeah, I, I really did. Oh, I yeah. got a hot take, I really man. I think it. the Tommy Morrison movie is better than that.
2: No, you're crazy. I watched Rocky Five uh, over Christmas break again just to see if. Maybe, you know, maybe I saw it the wrong way. No, that is a piece of shit. Uh,
3: well, I want to ask your thoughts on the Martin Luther King speech in the Ram ad. Mm. Uh, that seemed to get, elicit a lot of hot takes coming out of the Super Bowl.
2: I figured I could take, I could have the floor on this one. Um, (laughs) yeah, creatively, I thought it was well done. Um. The defense I've heard is, well, the the King family commissioned it to be done. Um, that doesn't mean I still can't be offended by it. And not like in uh well this is shameful, how could they do that? Just you sell trucks. I think we saw a lot during the Super Bowl of brands trying to uh present socially conscious messages. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um mm-hmm. But that one, it it made me cringe a little bit.
1: I think you have to put every idea into the proper sort of narrative and cultural context. And in a year when uh, issues of race were visible on the NFL sidelines all year long, I don't know how you can think you can use Martin Luther King's voice in a way that won't evoke Race, so even if people hadn't, even if they hadn't Googled the same speech, and found out the speech was anti-commercialism and literally referencing cars being used as status symbols as a as a as a as a a, a toxification of American culture, which the speech does, the sermon does. Even if that wasn't true, I think it already was deemed for hot debate. Because it's Martin Luther King's Junior's voice in a commercial at a time when race is at the forefront of the NFL and the athletic experience in America and the first person on the screen is a middle aged white guy working hard. It just it that right. in itself shows that no one had had vetted it for how is this going to fit into the dominant narrative around cultural appropriation?
2: Uh, well, So here's the other thing, and to touch on what you just said, Brad, is I sat on a multicultural panel a couple of weeks ago, and uh, there was a lot of conversation about ads that were culturally insensitive or um, had practiced a cultural appropriation. And the question was, well, how does no one raise their hand and I think the answer is that people do raise their hand but the decision makers often and and of many racists I've seen this happen um, the decision makers become so enamored with the idea or the thought that they'll be applauded or that their peers will give them awards for the creative that they do that they don't stop to think if it's the right thing for the audience Um, and I think if they if dodge is guilty of anything it was that like certainly uh, they got an emotional reaction from some folks i think that's uh that's probably what they wanted but i don't think they thought of uh enough about what is the other side but i i, I don't doubt that there is probably a couple pr people within the organization who raised their hands and said are we sure this is a good idea? And it got through anyways, and they're paying the consequences. It's not gonna sell any trucks for them.
3: And the I only I approached this from a purely production point of view. But a couple of years ago I tried to do uh or I was doing an Army and AVTs, and in it uh we were doing like a march through time. Like it was like everything's it was 125 years since the first game. And so we were showing everything that had happened in American history in that time. And we got to the civil rights movement, and I found this clip of Martin Luther King uh, at a press conference. I think he was with Muhammad Ali, so I wanted to use it. And I was told I couldn't because his estate had sued CBS before. And I dug into it, and sure enough, Mike Wallace had done a special at the turn of the millennium on the century before. And he had used a clip from the Eye of a Dream speech, assuming that it was, it was – it was – Fair use and they got sued for six figures because as the king of state pointed out he was a private citizen and he owned that speech that's not a public speech given by a politician that was a private citizen it was like it would be like the same as like I'm an author and I wrote that you know he was a writer and he wrote the speech and it, it made me rethink Martin Luther King's legacy to his family and in crassly purely financial terms. And so when I saw that, spe- when I saw that spot starting, I just thought to myself, oh, wow, they cleared it with the estate. Like they got some money. And then okay. I saw the backlash start on Twitter. And that had just simply not been my first thought. And so I was like, oh, okay. And what the thing that I came to, and I'm going to try to articulate this as well as I can and you're gonna have to deal with some white liberal white guilt here too but like like there was something strange to me knowing what I know about it to think to myself about this country's terrible history with race and things like that but specifically with black wealth and the amount of money that has been pretty much plundered from Black people over the years, over generations. One of my, I still think that the one of the best magazine essays I've ever read is the case for reparations, which isn't about reparations for slavery. It's mostly about housing policy, reconstruction through like World War, through the Civil Rights era. A lot of it takes place in Chicago. It's by Tana E. C. Coates, I and mean, that that piece is crazy. But anyway, and so I was thinking about that in terms of black wealth and how it struck me that this was something that could be traded upon commercially. Like this can't, whether you agree with it or not, this family owns the rights to these speeches and can sell it. And like, we've come to terms with bands and like the idea of selling out no longer churns in our stomach like it used to. And somehow like Martin Luther King, because of what he means to us, we still want to hold him above commercialism. Literally, is the first thought I had in my head, and it was because of my background in trying to clear this stuff before. But it was like, well, shouldn't he and his family, shouldn't his family get the right to sell out like everybody else? And so I ask you that question.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, that's what. It's kind of what I had started in saying is that was the defense for people not being. Def- being offended yeah they have the right Mm -hmm. to make money um, but they also have to be prepared for the backlash like I know yeah I know uh, Dr. King belongs to them in the sense of um, heritage but he belongs to Mm -hmm. the black community as a whole so uh, if there are other people black or or otherwise who were offended by it they have the right to be offended as well so yeah Yeah. uh, um, it does feel like a a bit of a sellout to me, but do they have the right to do it? And also in fairness, uh, we all have created content or been responsible for producing something in one way or another. And we haven't, um, suffered that kind of backlash. But when you deliver that final piece of production, there is always that thought of like, how is this going to be received? And, um, not everything, uh, not everything goes over super well um, and it's, it's, it's really hard when you're working with people who are like-minded and you all agree on an idea and the idea evolves. Um, it's easy to think that something is great and then it goes out into the world and you just have to deal with the repercussions of that and that's what's yeah. happening.
1: Look, as a as a creator of this show, I always think about where we draw the line for that kind of stuff, which is why I want to take a moment to talk about Squarespace. <laughs> <You> guys, uh, <laughs> Squarespace is the well, only way. Do we get Squarespace? <laughs> no. Yeah, no, no. Shit. I, luckily, on this show, we, no one pays us shit to do shit, so we will <laughs> we will move on. Okay, that's wide open for this week. Right now, we're gonna move on to an interview I got a chance to do with Charlotte Wilder. Charlotte is just a really interesting talent in the sports world. Uh, She's an SB Nation, a rising star. She was producing some really interesting content all week long at Super Bowl. We broke down what she described as her recent obsession with baking shows, baking Instagrams, baking everything. Uh, But it's a really fun conversation. We encourage you all to follow her. She's a super fun follow on Twitter. I get into her a little bit about that. And how she retains uh, the the, the good natured humor on a platform that so often is 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 not good natured or humorous, and uh, I think you guys will really enjoy it. And after that, we will be back to distract you. Stick around. I'm a huge HGTV fan. And one, uh, you know, I love, I'm like obsessed with Fixer Upper. I watch a lot of Property Brothers, like taking care of my kids, like in the background. And one day my wife comes downstairs and she goes, you're literally watching HGTV while a man you've paid is hanging up cabinets in our laundry room at the (laughs) same moment. And so I'm wondering, is your, is your obsession with baking because you you (laughs) bake or are you like me where you like to admire the work?
4: That is that is so perceptive. No, I don't bake. I don't <laughs> bake at all. I never bake. I so so that's part part of this whole thing. I um my first job out of college was um at a cooking magazine and TV shows, America's Test Kitchen and Cooks Illustrated magazine. Um and I was a web editor there and I made some videos and all the videos, you know, I was in charge of their YouTube channel for a little bit in terms of producing stuff. And I would always choose cake videos. I would be like Mm. how to decorate a cake and our test cooks would do most of them. But um, my boss is finally like, I think you need to I think we need to branch out from cake stuff. And um, but there's something to me that's just so incredibly satisfying about watching people frost cakes and and <laughs> bake things. And it sounds silly, but like it's it's really therapeutic actually. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, so I when I was I'll I'll tell you the story of the half cake I accidentally
0: made. <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh enticing. In, in,
4: yeah, but uh, no, basically the obsession started, um, I've always been into watching, you know, cooking shows and, and uh, cake decorating videos, but this fall it got like really bad where I, I realized there was one night when I looked up and it was like 1130 at night, like a Wednesday or something. And I was, I realized I'd spent two hours in a, in like an Instagram hole of finding different <laughs> bakers and watching them frost cakes and cupcakes. And I was like, I texted my best friend and I was like, "Help!" and she was, <laughs> and she was like, she was like, "You're that like this is getting out of hand." And then I showed her some of the videos and she was like, "Oh my god, these are incredible!" And I was like, "Right,
0: <laughs> I know."
1: Well, what is the psychology of liking the the sort of watching it come together? Because I think with a lot of baking and the products, there's an intricacy to it. There's an artistry to it. It's not it's not as simple as just. It's completed, but it does have a, a, a really wonderful look to it. So do you, do you feel like, um, do you feel like it's sort of tapping sort of an artistic side of your brain, or do you, are you someone who just likes to see very uh, intricate tasks completed, or do, is it just that looks really delicious? I would love to to be eating it. Yeah,
4: no, it actually almost has nothing to do with the food part. Like, I don't really. I mean, I love cake, but I'm not like I'm not watching these because I want to eat cake and watching them because I think they're so satisfying. The sort of the, the methodic, the repetition of the motions and how methodic these people are and how it works every time the first time, because, you know, these Instagram accounts or these tutorials I watch, they're so good at it. Um, So, you know, they'll, they'll smooth on frosting and then it'll be kind of lumpy and then they'll take a, um, you know, like one of those bench scrapers or something, and just smooth out the side as they turn it, and it's right. mesmerizing to me. It really, like, it taps in some part of my brain where, like, I I often feel like I can't shut my brain off, or I won't stop obsessing, or worrying, or overanalyzing everything, which is probably why I'm a writer, and probably why most of us are miserable. But <laughs> that kind of that kind of shuts that part of my brain off for a little bit, and and let I just it it's almost like a a hypnotic thing where I'm like, I am just watching this cake (laughs) and it's really awesome. And it's like a little reprieve from my own stupid head.
1: I'm glad you said that though, because I do think there, I think that explains a little bit of my HGTV obsession. I got so into it a lot because we had a a second baby Mm -hmm. and when you're just trying to rock a kid to sleep and you're just to just be able to look up and see somebody else getting something done you know just you know seeming in control it, it was it, it, I didn't have to think too hard I could like walk out of the room and like come back and be like yep chip's still trying to hang up that archway and <laughs> still I did got
4: that ship lap <laughs> that's right yeah and it it it,
1: it, it was like uh it, it it did sort of just have a soothing process to it so I can totally relate to that I mean that that said though are you someone that since this has happened that you've made more of an effort to actually get out and and try you know great, You know, great baked foods. Are you someone that's like seeking out like voodoo voodoo donuts in Portland when you're visiting?
0: No.
4: So here's the thing. I don't really love like I love dessert at the end of a meal, but I'm not. I'm. I also don't like seek out certain foods when I travel. I'm. I am really bad about that. If you put something in front of me, I'll eat it. Um. So like, if someone's like, "Hey, let's go here," I'm like, "Totally cool." But if no one suggests something, I'm like, "Totally fine." Just you know, getting some sort of lame airport salad and being okay, which I'm not proud of. Like, I think it's very cool when people know the good spots to go to. Um, right. And in the ta- in the cities I've lived in, I'm like, oh yeah, I have my favorites for sure. But um, no, it's more of that I've been really inspired to try it. Like I got really into the Great British Baking Show also. Um, and what I love about that is it's competitive, but these people are so kind to each other. I mean, the contestants are just like, it, it's so soothing, and they're so sweet. And whenever someone gets kicked off, they're like, well, I'm just happy I made it so far. And, like, it's really moving. Um, but also, I think that it's cool because you learn a lot about baking. I mean, they – you know, I know now that if you heat your eggs as you whip them, they'll – well, now I can't remember. I think they get lighter. <laughs> but, you know, like, you can – you sort of pick up what these different um, techniques and strategies in baking are. So I've been wanting to do it more and more, actually, since I've gotten into watching these things. And, you know, my tiny, my studio kitchen in Brooklyn isn't totally conducive to it. But um, when I was, the the story, do you want to hear the story of the half cake, Brad? Should I tell I you to hear. I want to
1: hear it all. Don't hold okay. back.
4: Okay. So when I was home over um, Christmas, I... I was like my mom knows that i'm obsessed with these cakes um you know i've been telling my parents how i'm like oh you gotta follow this one and they're like whoa okay (laughs) what's (laughs) happening to our daughter um but so i was like determined to make a cake and um i had that same the same friend i mentioned before um hillary was she's she still lives in boston um and another one of our friends amy also lives in boston so i texted them and i was like hey guys um, I mean, Amy doesn't, but we were all home over break in the, in the town we grew up in. And uh, I texted them. I was like, hey, guys, tomorrow I'm making this cake. Uh, you know, I'm obsessed with these videos. I really think it's time I try it. And they were both like, oh, man, uh, okay, good luck. And I was like, do you want to come, like, see me slash help? And they were like, yeah, for sure. So I start making – I, I like, get all the ingredients. I go to the store. I get all my food coloring. Um, And I make – I make two cakes for th- that I think are going to bake up way higher than they do. So, I have these two sort of slabs and I put them on top of each other and I am just devastated that it's not high enough. Like I was picturing this sort of four four-tiered beautiful cake and that it would be so tall and you'd be like, "Yeah, well, you need to bake four cakes in that case, right?" Like mm-hmm. if you baked two, what were you expecting? Um, and I really hadn't thought that through. <laughs> uh, so so we're standing there looking at this and, um, you know, I have I, I have this plan that I'm going to do this, you know, beautiful green and red cake for Christmas the next day. I'm Jewish, too. So the whole thing, none, none of this really made any sense. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm like convinced I'm going to do this. And um, Amy and Hillary and I were looking at these cakes and, and I was like, these are not high enough. And we were like, you know, well, what we could do, I could cut them in half and then have half a cake, but it would be taller. And somehow in the moment, this seemed like a great idea. Like we were like, yes, this makes <laughs> this makes so much sense. It'll be a half moon. You can turn it into like a moon cake. And <laughs> It's like perfect. And then I cut the cake in half and it's it literally it just looks like half a cake. And I yeah. was. I was crying. I was laughing so hard. I think I put a video on Twitter where I'm just like losing my mind because I can't believe what an idiot I am that I thought this would work. But anyway, I ended up frosting the cake. <laughs> I ended up turning into a a tropical scene with like a sailboat and a sunset. I mean, we really we really took a hard left from from the the path that I had set out. But. It, it it still, you know, it looked okay. For half a cake it looked it looked pretty good.
1: Well, I mean and look, that's why we watch you know, that's why we don't hang up our own cabinets and we don't make our own cakes, man. We right. watch so that we can we can live vicariously through these other people.
4: Totally. It's like look, I'm trying to I'm trying to be a <laughs> sports writer here. I don't have I can't devote all my spare time I mean I could but I don't have the kitchen that's really what it comes down to. <laughs> I think I think if I had a nice kitchen I would be like a little bit more obsessed with making them than I actually am.
1: So the you mentioned the British baking show it, it has become I think sort of a, a you know a phenomena. I think it's okay to put that in that category because I there there are lots of different baking entities and cooking shows around but it, it certainly captured a, a a wide audience here in the states. Why do you think it it caught on it, it kind of get got this kind of instant cult following and then it's kind of expanded its footprint since then and and what you you already mentioned the kind of the kindness of the show, but you know Mary and the personalities on it. what What about it do you think kind of broke through the clutter?
4: I think it's actually a really great study in how to build um, loyalty with your viewers and um, how to deliver. It's actually it's, it's really, you know, something that people in sports should pay attention to, I think, in terms of podcasts or recurring series, um, because what they do is they they introduce the constants. Right. So you, you have the judges, the two judges, Paul and Mary, and then the hosts whose names I'm completely blanking on right now. Um, but the two women who host the show and then you have contestants and the contestants, you get to know them over the course of a season. It's not like Chopped, where you have three contestants for one episode and then you have three new ones. You kind of you kind of stay with these people. So you start to learn their, um, you know, their strengths and weaknesses and their personalities. And then the hosts guide you through. And and there's the same thing every week. Um, But you add in variables. Um, So, you know, one week is cakes. The next week might be breads, but you start each week with you have one thing that you decided you were going to make. Then there's a technical challenge where they tell you what to make. And then you have to go all out and make what they call a showstopper. So viewers know what they're getting, but they also um, have enough variables that it stays interesting. It's like playing within the confines um, just enough that it's it's new but familiar every time with um, sort of depth of characters that you get to really dive
1: into well, I mean, what would you say was your reaction when you know the the, the spinoff the Great American Baking Show came out this year. It was a complete fiasco because of uh, I believe sexual harassment claims against one of yeah. the judges. Yeah, there were a lot of people who were excited about that show, and I think it even may have aired and then got ripped down um mm-hmm. pretty quickly so how closely did you follow the spin off and what was your i mean clearly no one is defending the actions of the judges so i'm not i'm not saying whether it was the right decision or not but did right. was it deflating for fans who were hoping this franchise might expand more quickly in the united states
4: Honestly Brad i didn't i wasn't i only started watching the show recently oh, okay. um so like in the past few months like i um people had told me that I would love it and that I should watch it. And I kind of resisted in the way that someone tells you something's good for you and you don't want to do it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Or when they they Um, just swear. Oh my God. in high school, it's like, Oh, you should listen to fish. And I'm like, Nope, already out. Like I I see all your backpack stickers and I'm just not ever going to listen to a CD ever.
4: Right, exactly, and then you listen to fish, and you're like, "Oh shit, I love fish." Um, so <laughs> I'll know, let you
1: know when I finally get to that point.
4: <laughs> I mean, I've been known—I've been known to put on a five-hour-long fish album and zone out. Um, <laughs> no, but I, I think—I think to me, part the charm of this show is that it's the Great British Baking Show. Like, I think that the thing about a lot of the stuff that they're making is it is so intrinsically British. Like, you look at some of these desserts and think. Uh, that's the weirdest thing I've ever seen. Like they made these things called Jaffa cakes, which are cake. And then they have like orange jelly and then a thin layer of chocolate. And I'm looking at this and I'm like, I don't really want to eat that, but I totally respect that you have that at tea time or whatever it is you're doing. And because they have these amazing British accents and everything's so quaint and they're in the countryside, it all works together. But I think for American version of this, you'd have to make it more American and, and I don't think that there's that same charm to our desserts, honestly, that there are to these weird British traditions.
1: Yeah, I, I understand that. And I also think American cooking shows tend to dial up drama either with uh, meaner personalities yeah. or or with, like, stunty stuff because, like, Cake Boss was popular for a while, but that was more about how how crazy can we make... Uh, you know, can we make the product and and, and there's no, nothing appetizing about it.
4: And that is American, right? It's like this excess, this land of plenty, this like, oh my God, here, we're going to put absolutely all of the things that we can into this and heighten the drama and make it. And you're not, not to say that other, other places or other, um, programming isn't like that in other places. But I think the thing about the great British baking show is it's sane they're like these they choose amateur bakers and then they give them tasks that are hard but doable like i look at some of these and i think if i practice maybe i could do some of that you know it's not impossible yeah. and it's also not sort of you know they on chopped they give you like a a bag of donuts a bottle of coke um you know a fennel root and like <laughs> parsley and they're like go to town and i that's, <laughs> yeah who cooks like that and on the great british baking show they're like hey Make your daughter's favorite birthday cake, and everyone's like, "Okay, you know." Right. Like, there's there's a level of practicality to the show that is actually far more relatable than these sort of novelty cooking gimmicks.
1: So, I mean, look—you work in sports; you're not easily starstruck. Uh, but if you got a, one of those cheeky winks from Mary,
4: oh my god, uh, how would you respond? <laughs> yeah, you know, that's funny about sports. I think that's something that. Um, when I started writing about sports, I was not expecting to fame sort of becomes not a thing as much um, because you're around famous people and you're like, I really just need you to say something interesting um, as opposed to being impressed that you're here. Um, And, but, you know, man, there are some people that I would just lose my mind for Mary. If she, I mean, if I saw Mary, let alone if she winked at me, I think I would probably I would melt like a like a like a bad Danish, <laughs> <laughs> um, but also like Martha Stewart. Um, I would lose my mind if I could hang out with Martha Stewart. I tweeted her sometimes. Her Instagram is is another thing that I'm obsessed with. Um, or Phil Collins. Like I have these very weird. Um, specific celebrity crushes that really, uh, don't make sense for like a 28 year old woman to be, to be as into as I am.
1: Uh, Okay. Well, I'll double down because I'm 38 and I'm a dude and I love myself some Phil Collins.
0: Oh my God. Here's here's
1: what I will say. I think, um, uh, against the odds is like the most underrated, like ballad of the last 30 years
4: easily. I also think I mean we could transition to be a Phil Phil Collins <laughs> podcast if you want. Um I I have That's up to not, you, my friend. <laughs> literally, I have been listening to No Jacket Required for I think 3 months straight now. Yeah. Like it's it's the album. I think I listen to it all the way through at least 3 times a week.
1: Wow. I don't
4: know what's going on, but it's the it's it's become a little a little bit concerning.
1: I uh, mean, his you forget how many songs that he did that we know i mean it, it, I, know. I i i had a um i found my cds recently and i had a phil collins greatest hits and i popped it in and i think i mean this was a couple months ago but i, I remember being like i why like really know like 12 or 13 of these songs that's crazy Oh,
4: for sure it really is like you start listening to no jack Who required the first time and you're like oh wait take me homes on this you're like don't lose my number I mean, in the way that Phil Collins can do a key change, like few people. Phil Collins and Beyonce are the masters, and Michael Jordan, uh, Jackson, Michael Jordan, uh, are like the masters of key changes. And nothing pumps me up more than a good key change.
1: Well, can I give you some advice here, or, 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 or I get not advice, a, a recommendation? I'm not going to oh, mansplain please. 80s pop uh, key changes to anybody.
4: Listen, uh, if you want to, I'm honestly that's like the least offensive thing anyone could mansplain to me.
1: My favorite key change uh-huh. in all of music. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm sure there's probably some examples of like my snootier music taste, but my favorite, like, just general. Uh, popular song key change is the end of Belinda Carlisle's "Heaven Is a Place on Earth." Oh,
0: when it oh, kicks
1: up one yes. notch, and you're like, <laughs> "I'm in." And I, 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 right. I've always maintained that that is a harder rock song because of that energy at the end than like half of like the new metal garbage that came a decade later.
4: I could not agree more. When 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 that key change hit in "Heaven Is a Place on Earth," I I could literally run through a wall. Yeah. I would like I could like Kool-Aid man through my apartment into <laughs> into the street. I it's just absolutely incredible. I get really excited about things though. Like that's something I've learned about myself is that and I, I actually tweeted this during the um AFC championship game because to- Tony Romo <laughs> in like high, high energy situations, he gets so enthusiastic and right. like you know, people are making fun of him for doing the, ooh, why is he? I don't know if he's in. <laughs> and I was sitting there being like, oh my God, I identify with this guy. Like, if there's something happening that I, you know, I just like am all in on, I got all in on cakes. I can be all in on Phil Collins. And it's like not an act. I'm really serious. I get, I get like so excited about stuff. Um, it's, I mean, maybe that's why I like writing out sports because everything's kind of exciting. And in the moment, as a sports fan, you're like allowed to be nuts, but I would be nuts about like anything.
1: All right. So, cycling back to baking, you mentioned Instagram a few times. Who are your <laughs> must follows for your fellow baking obsessives?
4: Well, Brown, I am so glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> I came prepared, um, my friend. I, yeah. My, actually, I have one really that's my ultimate. Um, and her name is Chelsea White. And she has an Instagram account called Chell Sweets. So it's C-H-E-L-S-W-E-E-T-S. And she is incredible to me. She has like almost half a million followers. She is a full-time CPA in Manhattan um, and is like in her late 20s and has this Instagram account where she just makes cakes for fun. And she recently put on her story, she was like, I don't, you know, to everyone asking, like, I don't want to be a professional baker. I just love doing this. Um, And she has a full time job. And I just think it's so cool that here's this person who is really just sharing the things she loves to do with uh, an audience, even though she's not really trying to sell you anything, like she'll partner with brands. But it's not like she's like, hey, come to my bakery, or not that there's anything wrong with that. I just think it's very cool to be so content in your life that you can have a hobby that's really just a hobby. I mean, I've only had obsessive passions, which I mean, m- mainly writing where I'm like, this is the only thing I want to do. And I just think it's really cool that you can have someone who's really into baking. But she's like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm pretty cool uh, going to my going to my job every day. So and she just makes the most incredibly um, sort of kitschy cakes like m- mermaid tail or Santa's or she made these um I don't know. She go go check her out. She's uh she's very impressive.
1: Yeah, she is good. Although I don't want to burst your bubble, but knowing what I know from my side of the industry, she's probably making like twenty grand per those branded mentions. So,
4: I, God damn it! So she's really raking it in. <laughs> I should have been a I should have been a cake influencer.
1: Well, clearly you still have the the talent for it. I mean, that just no, I
4: don't, just, Brad. I made go half, get half goddamn half cake.
1: cake. <laughs> I'm sure half cakes is available on instagram then Uh, that could be your thing you know
4: yeah do you think that could be my thing i feel so the one thing i will say about a half cake you know i'm not i'm not trying to defend this but i'm not not trying to defend this is that the front part you really have a whole lot to work with it's like a canvas you know you have a full slab Uh in addition in addition so i don't know maybe there's maybe there's something there i'll send you the video of of the half cake uh Please,
1: actually, please do share any images you have. We will we will be sure to make them part of our promotional campaign when the when the show.
4: Okay, is. awesome. I'm really <laughs> glad that this. is... Yes, sometimes I'm like, God, Charlotte, what have
1: you done? <laughs> <laughs> I t- let, let me close with this. I mean, do you, is this something that you feel like you have people to talk with, or is it like sort of an insular fascination? For example, I no one wants to hear me talk about. Property brothers, like I, right. I literally cannot have a conversation with anyone about it. So it's well, just. Well, you
4: might have the wrong friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: exactly. Or, or a, I have a I have a four year old and a one year old daughter, and um, they they, they just want to okay. watch My Fair. Little Pony and or steal whatever I'm holding.
0: Yeah. But but,
1: but I do find that like, it, I also think with Instagram accounts, like I, there are certain things that I follow that are just sort of fun, but they become very um just sort of very quiet personal thing so how much is this mm-hmm. actually translated into discussing with your friends or maybe even finding other people online that you who when you tweet about this that you have become sort of you know you <laughs> have back and forth with
4: That's a great question. Um no, it's very insular. It it really this is the most I've talked about it. Um and it's funny cuz I I actually sort of mentioned to Eater that I might be interested in writing something about it. But then I I didn't really follow through because it's, it's really, um, yeah, maybe I would someday. Uh, but this is the most I've talked about it ever. I think because I do get such, um, it's so soothing for me and it is such a personal thing. Like, uh, I'll just look at, I'll go on these deep dives at night, just like when I need to chill out. Um, and, you know, I'll tweet jokes about it. And I like showed the picture of the cake that I made. Um, but I think that there's something nice about, um, you know, having something that, you know, I'm happy to talk about it, but I, it's not like a community thing. It's not like I'm seeking out other people who feel the same way. You know, I think the thing about sports that I love so much is you know, a game is on, and it's this communal experience. Whether that's in the bar you're in, or the living room you're in, or the the Twitter accounts you follow. Um, but this, for me, is just—it's sort of like I can hop in when I want, and I can hop out when I want, and um, no one, no one really cares that I care about it, if that makes sense. And there's something kind of cool about that.
1: No, I totally understand. I also would say. Um... I think your Twitter account is a delightful follow, and I don't say that lightly because I I have found myself gravitating more and more toward people who seem to be having fun on Twitter, and you do seem like you're still having fun on the platform.
4: Well, that's honestly, I'm serious, that's the highest compliment um, (laughs) you can give me when it comes to being online. Uh, Yeah, I think I made, a little while ago, I made kind of a conscious decision, actually, um, to, you know, I used to... Um, trying to think how to say this. Um, also, one thing before I forget that uh, something I wanted to say about the cake thing is that um, I've always been really into painting and drawing, um, and I think that there's like I thought I was either going to go to art school or go into journalism, and so I think that there's an element of that that it satisfies too. Um, this you know visual component, or anytime I do try to make cakes, it's like it's almost like painting with frosting. So there's I think there's something. Mm-hmm. To that, um, but in terms of Twitter now, thank you. Uh, seriously, I, I I think that I reached a moment where it was becoming so stressful for me um, and so ugly and unpleasant. And then there would break through these moments where I saw a really great joke, and it actually made me happy. Um, and I was like, you know what? I think that it's so easy to be angry online, especially you know when awful political news and awful stuff is breaking all the time. And, um, you know, I, I think, though, that there are reporters and accounts and activists who are far more suited to speak to those things than I am in some way. And so I try to amplify that and retweet that. And, you know, I try to any money I have that I can give or any, you know, volunteering I can do, I try to do that. But I think that I realize that my role, I'm way better at, um, you know, making jokes or, or trying to. Inject a little bit of levity than, than I am anything else, um, and and it just sort of became a thing where I was like, well, if this, you know, a it's fun for me, and b if if this can make someone else chuckle for a second, you know, who knows if it does ever, but that that's kind of my goal.
1: No, it's great, and we encourage our our listeners to follow you at the Wilder Things, read you on SB Nation, and and also I will say this on the uh, I just saw on the Wikipedia page there is a a a. Uh I guess you would say a deluxe edition called Extra Large Jacket Required.
0: <gasps>
1: uh, no. Came out in 2016. I'm not sure what's on it.
0: Oh but my uh you God. may wanna you may
1: wanna you may wanna find that bad boy.
0: You
4: think Phil Collins would hang out with me? I think we might have a good time.
1: I ran into Lily Collins at um that's his daughter, right? Lily? Yeah. At yeah. Uh, the Soho House in LA. I mean I, I say ran into her loosely. I mean she was like at the table next to us. We didn't bother her. Um but I, I, did, I did see her and just actively kind of think, oh, I wish that was Phil, which I feel <laughs> bad
4: about. <laughs> I'm sure she's. I mean, I actually, I have, I know, literally nothing about these people's personal lives. But based on <laughs> his music, maybe, maybe we could like do karaoke sometime or something.
1: I, that would be amazing. Or bake. Yeah. Maybe you could bake something sometime.
4: There you go. I'd, r- I'd rather bake a Martha Stewart.
1: And we are back in the sports world. Athletes, coaches, media, they all want to do cool things. And we tell them, no, stop. Get back to watching game film or else you are a distraction. That's ridiculous. Life is just work and the things that distract us from work. So on this show, we end every week by telling you what is distracting us. Guys, I'm going to go first here. I recently cracked... The book uh Grant by Ron Chernow, who is the author mm-hmm. of Hamilton, which inspired the play Hamilton um, it's good, uh but candidly it's a a a a tome a tomb, a, a tome, Gareth, which one do you say tome tome it is a tome it's like a thousand pages. It's just even hard to lug around so what I was gonna give today to our uh, our, our our audience is I, I this is the type of book that I read. I read big long nonfiction books, and I'm gonna give you some tips for how to actually muscle through these books. Um, yes, at please. a time when you can just kind of take your phone out and flip it on and see like drunk people doing things on Instagram, and fill up a train ride doing that. Okay, <clears throat> here we go. My first tip is. Get through the first hundred pages as fast as you can, because I think once you get to triple digits when it comes to pages, you no longer feel like you're starting a book. You feel like you're reading a book, and when you're staring down 900 more pages, it feels good to be in in the triple digits and not like on page 57. Which I'm looking here. I'm I'm currently on like page 50, 54. <laughs> That's not a good look for me. I gotta get I gotta get through. Page ninety nine by the end of this week. Also, like with nonfiction books, like or usually the beginning is the most boring part. It's like the childhood or the parents' backstory. It's it's nothing that it's nothing that covers uh, why you're reading the book unless it's the goddamn Shirley Temple bio. So you just kind of muscle through that part. Um, okay, number two, I would say get a really cool bookmark. So I I had bought Mm. a. A Federalist Papers at a, a used bookstore, and the cover was really, really old, and it was starting to fall apart. So I actually got that laminated and turned into a bookmark, and I use that on big books that I read. And there's something about like having a cool bookmark in your hand while you're reading that I think gives you something to fiddle with. That doesn't feel—I I don't know. It, it, there's a good feeling to it. I also think that when you have one really good bookmark, if you give up on a book and you start another book. You have to go through the process of taking that bookmark out and feeling bad about it. And I just feel like that's more motivation to just kind of muscle through whatever you're currently reading, if you like it enough. With nonfiction, Google what you do not know. If you get to like an extended section um, that you just don't understand... uh, Go look for answers. Like it's okay. Like I, I don't think you need to be confused for forty-five pages in a nonfiction book when you can go watch a ten-minute YouTube video about that subject and at (laughs) least get a better sense Mm. of it. I I say this through the context of I want. Like I'm really
3: confused. Like Brad, if you're reading about U.S. Grant, you're probably really confused about this whiskey he's always drinking. So you had to start <laughs> drinking a lot of it just yeah. to become familiar with it.
1: <laughs> done, done and done. Um, it also, explains I mean, why I, you're on
3: page 54.
1: Yeah, dude. Once I read an entire book about Andrew Jackson called The Age of Jackson, which which connected his presidency all the way to FDRs. And there was like a huge section about the National Bank that I didn't get. So I read an, I stopped and I read a whole other book about that. And then I got back into the first book. Like, just, just if you don't know something, like, go find it. Uh, Finally, if you're busy, read like ten pages a day, because that sounds ridiculous, but you can get through five hundred pages in two months just doing that. If you just like plow through it, like, I'm only talking work days. Don't, don't hit me on the math there. Uh, But you can get through a lot more than you think just by chipping off a few pages at a time. And then finally whatever you whenever you w- go to get on your phone, like get into the book, and I'm especially looking at your commute like if you're in a train and you're like, "Oh man, I'm tired, uh, pull the book out, do not watch uh that Rick and Morty episode on your phone for the third time this week <laughs> uh and I say that as someone who probably has been doing that <laughs> more than reading Grant, which is why I'm only fifty four pages into it. So that is Brad's advice for getting through thousand page nonfiction books. Gareth, you read great. a lot. Gareth, you read a lot. What is your distraction? Uh okay. This is like
3: peak, Gareth, by the way. <laughs> I mean like oh, we're really going for it this week. Um I got out of the uh, I got out of the Super Bowl and I was like Was on the flight home, and I just had I couldn't find any music on my phone that I wanted to listen to. I got I wasn't I got into work yesterday. I wasn't listening to it, and you know we've talked about collecting records on here, so like I follow these record dorks on Instagram, and this one guy who works uh, down at Good Records posted (coughs) um, a pitchfork review from this weekend. By this composer I'd heard of, and I'd never listened to it. It's uh, it's this guy Lamont Young, and the piece is called "The Well Tuned Piano." It is a 20th century, late 20th century minimalist piece of music. That is, fi- <laughs> it is it is five hours long.
1: <laughs>
0: what, Garrett?
1: Gareth real quick I never I never would have thought when I rolled out with I'm reading the US grant bio I never would have thought you would have taught me with something way more boring but Jesus you did
0: Uh,
1: (laughs) dude
3: well I so what I wanted to say is like Adam you talk about meditation you talk about like you know finding a quiet place like it's beautiful like repetitive he was very influenced by drone music. I started reading about him on Wikipedia. Like a, he grew like up a white in, noise
1: machine? <laughs> like a white noise machine.
0: Like yeah, my daughter's yeah, well, room? He grew
3: up in Idaho. <laughs> he loved, like, it was the sound of wind and, like, droning <laughs> things. It was a heavy influence <laughs> hours. Like you're laughing at all the wrong parts. It's 5 hours long. One piece of music. Yeah.
2: Hey Gareth, um, how how was the heroin?
0: Oh.
3: <laughs> the well-tuned piano. Uh, 5 hours of 20th century
1: minimalism. <laughs> oh, but, real quick guys, I forgot. I don't I didn't mean to go back to mine, but I forgot um if you're trying to stay awake and read your book, uh, don't don't listen to Gareth's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, That's Adam, uh,
3: the well-tuned Adam. piano. Yeah.
2: I don't know how to follow that. You guys make always make me feel so basic. Uh but I before the weekend or two weekends before Super Bowl, um my girlfriend who was born in Paris, uh grew up a little bit outside of Paris and then moved to Brussels as a teenager. So, um I went to Brussels for a wedding, which was awesome uh, because it was entirely in French. Um, and I didn't understand a word, but they, it was, it was probably the most fun wedding I've ever been to. Um, really nice people. Uh, we got there at two in the afternoon and left at 4.30 in the morning. And that is the first time I've been up since midnight in a long time. Um, so had an amazing time. And then. Went down to Paris and met her parents, uh, who showed us around the city. Uh, and yeah, I don't have any, I don't have any highlight or great thing to say about it other than it was a really nice way to kind of relax before the stress of Super Bowl planning and Super Bowl week started. And it gave me a little, uh, a little case of the travel bug, and looking forward to planning the next trip.
1: Nice man. That's real nice. Yeah, I do Brussels. love
3: that you started that with. Oh, you guys always make me feel so basic.
1: So I just got back from
3: Brussels. And- <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> Gareth listening to the essentially the, uh, the 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 five hour loop of a silent fart, and Adam is like <laughs> off in Europe doing fabulous weddings and touring Paris. That pretty much sums up just that yeah. sports right there.
2: Anyway, amazing food, amazing beer. I definitely, I think Brussels is an underrated city. I think uh, people should check it out. Only an hour train ride from Paris.
1: <laughs> All right. That is our show for this week. Let's give a shout out. to a Yeah,
0: I'm
1: going to give a shout out to, Shaq. <laughs> yeah, to uh, Shaquille O'Neal, as always, to Charlotte Wilder uh, for good enough for coming on, talking about, baking shows uh gareth any shout outs
3: shout out to don banks good to meet you in the bathroom
1: buddy yes amen adam shout outs
2: shout out to all the folks who i ran into at super bowl i know there were a lot of complaints about it but i think the one thing that you take away from it is what was discussed here the relationships that you build in this industry along the way people who i've known for my whole career and i probably only see them Once a year, and that's at Super Bowl. Um, That was really uh, inspiring, I guess, gratifying. Shout out to Gareth for giving me some Patriots VO work. Are we allowed to talk about that, Gareth?
3: Oh, yeah, man. That's been on the internet. We should post a link to it. Okay. It's a little dated now. uh,
2: Yeah, Gareth needed uh, someone to step in to do a VO, and rather than call a professional in New York, he knew I was in town, so... Uh, so I got the job, and that was a fun way to end the week. Uh, and as usual, shout out to my boy Uzi, yeah. Def Jeff, Little Swanee, Meech, Ron Mac, and my other cousin Ron.
1: And in the immortal words of Shaquille O'Neal, booty rappers, stay, stay booty. With the booty.